Here's today's transformational truth. Wounded healers need a safe place to heal. Welcome to the Transformational Truth Podcast, where we're committed to eliminating the obstacles that take the joy out of life and leadership. Today's guest is Dr. Dan Sarter. Dr. Sarter is the Vice President of Integration and Professor of Counseling at Richmond Graduate University in Atlanta, Georgia. He is a licensed clinical psychologist and a board-certified counselor. Dan's clinical specialties include complex trauma recovery, addiction recovery, marital therapy, and the integration of faith with clinical practice. He provides continuing education, advising, clinical supervision, and consultation to nonprofit and ministry organizations on complex trauma, trauma-informed care, vicarious trauma, and compassion satisfaction to promote thriving at levels of organizational health, staff wellness, and client care. Dan and his wife, Robin, have been married for over 30 years, and they have four young adult children. Welcome to Transformational Truths. Here's, trans here's today's transformational truth. Wounded healers need a safe place to heal. And today we're having a conversation about leadership and depression. It's an issue that, in my opinion, doesn't get nearly enough attention. The truth is that pastors and ministry leaders deal with depression, but are often the last to either realize it or admit it. Most pastors today deal with a very real sense of loneliness and isolation. More often than not, they feel the pressure to not only wear multiple hats, but to perform well while wearing each one. It's usually the same pressure that makes it difficult for pastors to establish healthy boundaries in their lives for the sake of their own mental, emotional, and relational health. And on top of all of that, they carry the same pressures at home that everyone else does. Some studies actually report that as many as seven out of 10 pastors, seven out of 10 pastors suffer from depression and depression among ministry leaders, for some reason, at some point along the way, has become almost taboo. So when they do deal with it, they feel the need to hide their private struggle in order to maintain their public image. And for this reason, so many pastors are suffering in silence. And here helping us to unpack today's topic is Dr. Dan Sarter. Dr. Sarter, thank you for joining us. We're really, really honored to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Travis. I'm really honored and delighted to be here. And I'd like to extend an invitation to you to just call me Dan, uh, and I'll be really comfortable with that. Oh, fantastic. So be it. Uh, Dan, um, I was recently reading Dr. Gary Lovejoy's book, A Pastor's Guide for the Shadows of Depression. And he wrote something that was really uh, impactful, and I wanted to share it. He's talking about a pastor's tendency to hide his battle with depression. And here's what he wrote. He said, pastors routinely disguise it, privately pleading with God to help them control their terrifying implosion, to help them from the fatal flaw of despair that threatens their ministry. So Dan, they're suffering in silence. How in the world did we get to this place where we feel this kind of pressure to hide our own battles with depression? 
What a penetrating and good question, Travis, and one that over the years I spent a fair amount of time reflecting on for my own journey as well as those around me that I care for. Um, and I don't know that I have great or absolute answers for that. Certainly, I think the introduction that you shared today moving into our topic highlights some of the reasons for all of that. Uh, and it's easy to play armchair quarterback, but um, maybe what I'll do is um, share a little bit of my own journey uh, from my pastoral days, and that might illuminate how it is that I see that we yeah. have gotten here. So um, my faith was really important to me from a very early age, and I sensed a call to vocational ministry when I was an adolescent, and that led me to Bible college and various facets of involvement in ministry. I was, um, though not a super serious student, I became a serious student of the word and of theology, believing at my core that if I could um, just discern the right things and believe them well enough, that that would address the fears and the anxieties and the uncertainties, certainly mm. the sense of loss and depression mm. and emptiness that I was feeling and uh, and help me overcome some of my other areas of struggle of addiction and compulsive behaviors and uh and as i went through my bible college years and started to get involved in pastoral work um it wasn't working mm. although there was real truth there and something that mattered a great deal to me so i did what any good uh, believer does and i tried harder and escalated things and went to seminary and took a more a uh, responsible position in the work of ministry that I was involved in. And Travis, uh, what, I began to found, what I began to find was there was this uh, real urgency in me and greater desperation because what I expected would happen as a result of pursuing my faith in these ways in terms of, of devoting my life to knowing God and to serving others to know him and to love him, um, and, and being involved in these avenues of service, just what you described began to happen in me. Um, a greater split and a greater burden uh, between what was happening inside and what I would allow others to see mm. um, began to be the place because I wanted my faith and my service and my pastoring and shepherding to be genuine. And I was holding hope for others. So I felt like I had to live in a way Right. That looked like I had found the answers. Mm -hmm. Right. And yet inside the disparity uh, began to become larger and larger, which wow. meant more depression for me, more isolation for me, because I was afraid to go to certain people because it's sort of like when we're in pastoral roles, it's our job on the line. Right. Not only are we trying to be there for others, but in some cases it's like, well, if people know about my struggle then they doubt my leadership, or it could even bring questions, should I be a pastor and shepherd to begin with, right? So all of these things start to stir up together, and the greater isolation creates greater despair and depression. It's in those lonely places mm. that we think we're going utterly crazy and begin to even doubt our faith that somehow God has abandoned us or that our faith doesn't work. Long story short on all of that, Travis, I think um, there was a place in me actually through the pastoral care work that I was doing that led me to explore counseling and psychology, not in terms of leaving my faith, but wanting to add to that ways of knowing and understanding life, my faith and relating to people 
that would do more or complete whatever was missing. So I was still on a journey and I knew the scriptures were important. I knew that praying was important and community was important uh, and never wanted to give those things up, but felt like there was a need for more and, uh, and to be, uh, to, to distill it. I think a lot of that was about for me trying to exit some of my own tradition, not completely, but to be able to develop for suffering Mm. and deeper practices for authenticity and confession and community. I didn't realize fully that that's what it was at the time, but looking back, I think that's what it ended up being. Wow. And, um, so, you know, something inherent in the work makes us vulnerable uh, because mm. it can be very isolating at the level of the soul that we're surrounded with people all the mm-hmm. time. Right. Wow. Wow, Dan, that's so insightful. Um, I wonder how many pastors and leaders listening can already relate that, you know, that idea. I've lived it. If I study hard enough, I'll heal. You know, if I work harder, I'll heal. And uh, when that doesn't work, you're, you're left to wonder and question about your, your sense of um, identity, your sense of calling, your sense of impact or effectiveness. I, I was recently, uh, Dan, having a conversation with somebody who uh, was wrestling in, their, in, the, in themselves with some difficult things. They went to somebody, this is a person, this, is a, this was a pastor, somebody in ministry. They went to their superior and they began to share with them. And when they began to share with them, the worst thing happened that you can imagine happening. Uh, they were punished. They weren't received. They weren't loved. They weren't given instruction or help. Uh, they, they, they didn't help them find a, a counselor or a therapist. They, they didn't wrap their arms around them. And I think it's those stories and those examples that highlight what you just said. Is it safe? Who can I go to? I need somebody to talk to. And there's this really strange, unfair uh, paradigm in ministry that in, in some cases we have adopted, I think, uh, where it's okay for everyone to be broken and everyone to need healing, except uh, the healer, except the shepherd, except the guy that's that's declaring the word of God. And I think this is where a lot of pastors and leaders are are getting stuck. I'm curious, Doctor Sarter, have you in your journey, which is an incredible story, your journey? Uh, now you're in a place where are, are you find yourself helping um, a lot of pastors and ministry leaders. Mm-hmm. Yes, and very much from a wounded healer paradigm, right? Yes. Because I'm still on my own journey, and it is through the shared communion of that and the authenticity of that um, that there is a mutuality yeah. in the healing that is experienced there. And so um, I think um, creating safe spaces for conversations that are honest and that are deep and explore the ways in which God might be present and at mm-hmm. work in these avenues of suffering and avenues of struggle um, that would be perhaps unexpected mm-hmm. and, um, and yet so beautiful because it's the place where the Holy Spirit does so much of his work for the fruit of the spirit it's not often triumphalistic uh and we want something that's triumphalistic sometimes i believe um but what it affords in terms of the gift of intimacy that transforms us Mm. is really exceptional you know you were saying a moment ago about sort of this standard that feels unfair certainly constricting and therefore dangerous for some of us to be 
right. honest about our humanness and our brokenness and places of sin struggle. Um, I think um, as I look at the scriptures now, I see so many of our um, faith fathers and mothers in the scriptures struggling deeply, whether that's Job or David or uh, the prophets. I mean, look at Elijah and his struggle. I also think about um, um, Jesus in some sense um, being portrayed to us by Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Mm. despised and rejected. He comes unto his own, and his own don't receive him. And the times and the places where he's exacerbated, saying, guys, how long do I have to be with you? And you not see and not understand. Mm. And the times that he went off to the lonely places, I think not only to commune with the Father, of course that's there, but probably, I imagine, if you'll let me have a little bit of projection here, yeah. to just sort of escape the people a little bit because it was being alone with the Father. Right. It was like he could probably breathe uh, a sigh of relief <laughs> of sorts, right? And uh, and then even the Apostle Paul, if we read him, I think, openly, we we read letters like Second Corinthians, and he is so angsty about his shepherding. Like mm. at one point, he thought he'd ruptured the relationship with them and he wasn't sure how that would turn out and it gave him great distress and Mm. also even in the opening chapter that he despaired even of life or the other places where he describes in that book like basically experiencing trauma and great tribulation and great rejection wow and even though he's crushed he's not destroyed wow and uh and then you know we could go to other figures in church history there are those that look and say what looked like Luther suffered with depression and Calvin in some ways, and certainly Spurgeon did and um, Handel and Charles Dickens, like these great uh, individuals of faith that um, God has used greatly for our benefit. And maybe it's a shift in perspective that's good for us to see. Um, Here I'm drawing from John of the Cross that the dark night of the soul Mm. is a normative part of our growth in our journey into deeper love and into deeper union and deeper transformation and not necessarily this scourge of failure about our faith or about us as individuals living in our faith. Yeah. And uh, there's something about that turn of perspective that I find to be very hopeful and refreshing. Mm. That's so valuable. I think, um, I think we're in a season to your point. Um, I feel like that God is shrinking the gap between the pulpit and the pew. And I think for so I think for some time there's been a very large gap there. And oftentimes we've adopted these models of ministry, quite frankly, that we were told we needed to, but we're isolating and and in the end, you know, we were we we always were encouraged to show our congregations um our strengths, you know, don't let anybody see where you're bleeding. Um you know, the problem with that, Dan, what I've discovered personally is that people relate far, far greater to Clark Kent than Superman. Uh, they they relate far greater to the fact that, wait a minute, you've got kryptonite too. And uh, when I started in ministry, I adopted that model. Uh, but here's what I discovered. I was setting people up for failure in, in this. They're like, well, yeah, pastor, you've got it all together. That's why God works through your life, or that's why God uses you to do this. I mean, you you don't have any issues or struggles. And I realized something. 
that I was starting to become the lid. I was starting to become the limiting factor. And when I began, when my wife Tina and I both began just to be more transparent and honest about our own lives, man, something began to happen. People began to step into, into purpose, uh, uh, answer the call of God on their lives, uh, uh, shake a sense of condemnation and shame. Uh, to your point, that paradigm shift, and I really feel like it's it's happening now, and I feel like it's important. Now, on that note, Dan, over the last, I don't know, at least five years, it feels like we have been blindsided by these headlines occasionally of pastors who have taken their own life. <laughs> sometimes just before service on a Sunday uh, in, in their office. Um, and, and you'll almost always hear them say, you know, we, we knew he was down or, or, or we didn't realize he was this down or we didn't really realize he was struggling with this. And then sometimes I think leaders are wrestling with depression and maybe they don't even realize it. Maybe they know something's off, but, but they don't know what it is because there's all of this, you know, haziness around it. Um, can you offer us maybe a few symptoms practically of depression that might help us identify it in our own lives? Absolutely. Yeah. What a great question. So traditionally from a clinical perspective, when we're thinking about somebody having a depressive episode, we're checking for things like disrupted sleep. So that might be a lot more sleep, although not necessarily restful sleep than they normally do, or not being able to fall asleep or maintain sleep. The sleep's being disrupted. Mm. Changes in appetite, and that can be either direction. Um, loss of appetite, uh, but for some folks, it's an increase in appetite. Mm. Um, uh, I can tell you, for me, this is a subtle sign, um, but I know when I'm starting to struggle, I crave carbs and I crave them at night. Mm. So like when I have um, uh, certain cravings that I'm finding harder to manage, it's actually a subtle but an important signal to me. Like, how am I doing? That's um, interesting. So changes in appetite. Now, typically, clinically, we're thinking of enough to increase weight gain or loss of weight gain by a certain percentage, like 3%. But uh, we can be more sensitive at times to just be alert to those facts. Um, other things like difficulty concentrating. Hmm. Usually, our thoughts are becoming more negative, and we're getting caught in cycles of negative thoughts. And pretty typically, that's going to be thoughts about ourselves, guilt, like we're, we're having a hard time forgiving or receiving God's forgiveness for us. And so we'll get mm. stuck replaying our errors. Then there's shame. And the shame is not just that I've done something wrong, but there's something wrong with me. Mm, that's so and good. This is different than having conviction about our depravity. This is those underlying feelings, I think, in our faith paradigm where we would say, I know God loves his children. But what my experience is, is that I'm under his persecution or that there, there's something with me that's so broken that, mm. that I'm just not lovable, right? Um, and then, of course, these things will begin to play out for us with um, a blue or depressed mood. And so we'll feel it there in a loss of motivation, a loss of pleasure in the things that we used to find pleasure in. Um, we'll start to withdraw so withdrawal can be one of those things or fighting the urge to withdraw. And again, this can be subtle for us in pastoral work because it's so peopled, but we'll find ourselves withdrawing from interactions with people or when we're with people, we'll withdraw sort of emotionally. Mm. We'll be physically present, 
but not emotionally or spiritually present. And, um, and so uh, another thing that I want to mention here, Travis, which I think is really important and plays into a lot of this. Well, I should mention before going there, of course, suicidality is a classic thing and it's a huge vital sign. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're thinking exactly how we want to take our life, but there's levels of severity on that. And sometimes it's just passive intrusive thoughts mm. of turning the wheel to, to, to direct our car into the trunk of that tree, or there'll be images that come along. We'll have these thoughts of death. Um, mm. And even if they're distressing to us, they can be signals that something is not right. Or just that longing, God, I'd be really content as I go to sleep tonight if you just took me in my sleep, right? Wow. Um, that's an indication that there's a level of suffering going on um, that's probably worth attending to. The one other thing that I was getting ready to go down the road of before mentioning suicidality um, is uh, is compassion fatigue. Mm. And so because of our work, when we're in pastoral roles, we are constantly um, hearing people's stories of addiction, of death and loss. In fact, there's performing of funerals and being bedside when people are uh, gravely ill. Um, we are hearing people's stories of brokenness and abuse and trauma. And what begins to happen in that is, as we grow to carry that, we get our own vicarious or secondary sort of traumatic stress from that. Mm. And after a while, our empathy starts to diminish because that compassion is fatigued. Mm. And those are the places where we begin to be a little more irritable and impatient and we're not so easily recovering from those things. So wow. those are the things that are at play. And everybody has a different sort of profile for which one of those symptoms will be more pronounced. And, um, and seasons where, of course, we're more stressed, so they're more pronounced. And maybe it's just situational because of our context. And when that season passes and that particular stressful event passes, those things wane a little bit. But um, if we are keen enough to observe ourselves and know ourselves rightly, we can begin to be aware of some of those things where, okay, this is a little stronger than what I think it should be given the stresses of my circumstance. Mm -hmm. And this is not fading uh, or this feels deeper. I really need to do something with this and attend to it. And that's being a good caregiver of our own souls. Really quickly, mm. I think of Jesus summarizing the Old Testament law and prophets as loving God with every part of our being and loving our neighbor as ourselves. This is the loving ourselves part that's not narcissistic. It's not worldly. Right. It's caring for ourselves as God cares for us so that we can continue to care for him and others well. There's mm. not a contradiction there. It's actually when we get that right biblically, we understand that we're stewards of ourselves. And mm. these are the things to listen to. Mm. Wow. Wow, Dan, you're already shining uh, some really bright light into some dark places, and it's already incredibly helpful. Um, Dan, Carl Rogers once said that internal conflict arises when one's public self is different from one's private self. He said that the space between those two versions of self is what can often lead to both depression and anxiety in our lives. So here's my question. How do we start to eliminate the gap between public self and private self? How do we na navigate that space? Mm -hmm. 
What a wonderful question and what a great quote. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, and I'd really love to connect that quote also to John Calvin and where he starts his whole institutes. He talks about the reciprocity of the knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge of God, which I think is rooted somewhere in Jesus's statements about the kingdom of God being within us. Now, this isn't this is a new age speak here, and this isn't like um, therapeutic mumbo jumbo in my mind. It's recognizing that uh, there's something about the kingdom of God um, that we know through the very platform and the foundations of ourselves. And uh, in fact, Jesus describes himself coming to be within us and the spirit is given to live within us. So here I want to connect these concepts to those passages and to that theology there, that somehow there's this reciprocity that I need to know God in order to know myself rightly. And I need to know myself rightly in order to know God rightly. And of course, all of that needs to be biblically founded and informed and infused. So somehow I think knowing ourselves better more mm. honestly and more truly. I think we know that we're knowing ourselves better and more honestly and truly when there is a depth in understanding our depravity, which has the flavor of conviction more than condemnation. Remember, Paul tells us in Romans that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right. And Jesus says that he's departing to send the Spirit in the Gospel of John because the Spirit's ministry is to convict us. And so conviction has a life-giving thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer would talk about. Um, there's this conviction, but there's not condemnation. It's not guilt-driven. And it's not shame given right. or driven because God is a shame covering God. But there is this conviction and movement towards life so that we see ourselves more honestly and bring that more honestly, I think, in our relationship with God, just owning and admitting where we are. Uh, and then here's a really important part. None of this is outside of community. We've got to do this with others. So that, you know, if, if I deepen my relationship with you, Travis, you'll see things about me that I can't see about right, myself right. and the feedback of that and my sharing things with you that you don't necessarily see, but bringing that into relationship heals because my fear is, is if you see me, you won't love me. But if you see me and I disclose myself to you and you love me, this is how God destroys shame. It's the only way I know for shame to be destroyed. And shame drives so much of our sin and so much of our fear. And so there's this really interpersonal part that involves the messiness of, of vulnerability and disclosure. And, um, and that's what I think accountability is about more than, and that's, by the way, what I think confession is about, what, what makes confession healing, mm. uh, more than something to, to check off in terms of a box, right. a list of to-dos. Right. And so, um, you know, it's wonderful when we can find that and build that. It takes time with other people. Right. Uh, but there also are places where um, I think it's helpful for us to find a spiritual director a therapist, a counselor, uh, who actually specializes in some of the areas of our struggle mm -hmm. um, that need a little more work, whether that's a pornography addiction or the depth of suicidality yeah. or crippling 
panic disorder. And instead of those being places of shame, maybe those are places that God is inviting us to enter into a deeper discovery of what he's doing in us so to good. set us free. Wow. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's so good. Um, Dan, one of the things I have the privilege of, of uh, speaking to uh, a group of leaders once a month in the uh, Leadership Institute for Core Development. And one of the attributes of core development is your spiritual health. And one of the things I teach them is, is the principle. It's not a new idea, but it's the principle that every human being longs for two, two things, to be fully known and to be fully loved. And I can't be one without the other. Yes. Um, if you don't fully know me, then I'm not sure you love me. You might just love the mask that I wear. Yes. And over time, it only breeds more insecurity, more resentment, more uncertainty, um, and does more damage in the long run. And I think that's what you're helping us to discover today and understand. Uh, this is incredibly valuable for our listeners. I want to encourage you. We're, we're not done with the interview, but this is one of those interviews you're going to want to save, uh, download it to your phone, uh, share it with somebody else. Because the reality is, is when it, when it comes to depression, and anxiety, especially in ministry context, ministry leaders and pastors, a lot of men and women are struggling, have nobody to talk to, and they're looking for a ray of hope. They're looking for somebody that understands. They're looking for somebody that's been there. They're looking for somebody that can empathize and, uh, and kind of hold our hand and walk us through this journey. And so hold on to this episode. I have a feeling this is going to be extraordinarily impactful. Dan, I want to I want to look at another quote by Dr. Lovejoy from his book. Um, I think it's uh, relevant. He said, part of the problem is that no one expects pastors to be struggling with depression. Instead, they think that because their walk with God is so strong, pastors will always find refuge in their faith as if pastors live above the fray. Wow, that statement above the fray. Uh, Dan, it, it seems like, like people simply don't expect their pastors to struggle and in turn, their pastor, to your point you made earlier, feels the pressure to live up to that expectation, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, the problem of course, is that this is leaving scores of ministry leaders feeling trapped and isolated. I mean, uh, multiple studies that I looked at preparing for this interview, uh, as many as seven in 10 pastors are, are privately struggling with depression, have no one to talk to. So... Mm -hmm. What would you say, let's, let's uh, switch gears for a minute. We've been talking to pastors and leaders, but what would you say to the person who thinks ministry leaders should not deal with this kind of pain? And I've heard it from multiple uh, peers. I've heard it from pastors and friends from different, we were talking before the interview, from different streams of, of tradition. Uh, and oftentimes they're just told, well, you don't pray enough. Um, you, you, you're not studying scripture enough. Uh, you're not practicing enough discipline. There's something off with you. There's something wrong with you if you're, if you're struggling with depression. And so they just kind of push back into this cave. Um, pastors who would love to go to their, their elders and their board and say, man, I'm just, guys, I, I need some help. Would you pray with me? Or, uh, or, or I need to, to talk to somebody. What would you say to them who has this faulty idea that shepherds, pastors, healers, they, they shouldn't hurt this way? What, what would you say to that person? That's a, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I don't know that anything that I would say would necessarily shift their perspective. 
uh, because by and large, many of us hold that perspective until we reach a place of brokenness, Wow! that that no longer works for us. And we're left in one of two places of going one of two paths, completely abandoning and shipwrecking our faith or mm. allowing this deconstruction process uh, do a work in us so that what gets reconstructed is a different and more from my perspective, robust and resilient understanding of the scriptures. And here's where I'm going to come back to a theology of suffering. So um, I believe that um, God makes all things right in the end. I hold to the hope of what we read in the final chapters of Revelation. And I believe in the goodness and absolute power of God to mm. see to it that that happens. And theologically, we also live, and experientially, I live in this period where the kingdom of God is inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. Mm. It is now and not yet. I'm in the present age and the age to come, if we want to use sort of the eschatological language of it. And what that means is that suffering is a significant part of the paradigm, not just for Jesus. Remember, Jesus was the Messiah who didn't come to bring political and right. economic triumphalism. Right. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world at this stage, right? And right. he said, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. And he suffered for them. Now, let me be really clear. Um, bringing both of these things together, Jesus had a joy in him, and it was abundant. And I think that's what drew people to him. They wouldn't invite him to parties otherwise. And his statement was, I'm sharing these things with you that your joy might be complete and that my joy might be in you. And I give you a joy that the world doesn't give you. Mm. I think that's that triumphalistic joy that sometimes we're mistakenly pursuing. Along with that, what he said is the path is in serving and in suffering. And I won't repeat the statements from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, mm -hmm. but also we see it even in the closing chapters of the Gospels, where he's explaining once again to the disciples that, oh, it was necessary that the Son of Man must suffer these things and die in order for the kingdom to come. Well, of course, his invitation to us is to follow him. Mm. that we would take up our cross as well. Right. And while I think sometimes taking up the cross is standing up for the gospel when it's um, maybe um, uh, in circumstances where socially, you know, it's adverse. And so, you know, I bear the brunt of some sort of um, uh, persecution at whatever level right. for standing for my faith. Right. But I think the reality is the fullness is, is that we are suffering because of the presence of sin at many, many different levels hmm. and that we are taking up our cross and following Jesus and suffering along with him, which Paul adopts that language as well, that he is completing the sufferings that were lacking, not for the sufficiency of salvation, but for the dissemination of that salvation, I believe. Mm. And Paul invites us to follow him. And Paul does not shy away from talking about the suffering that he goes through. Right. And I think we misread Paul with a triumphalistic theology 
and we put Western lenses on and see formulas and behaviorism there that I don't think are consistent with the culture and the time and the mm. audience that he's writing in and writing for. And so I think if we could just pull some of those things off, we actually see that indeed there's a joy. It's the fruit of the spirit. We must have that. But that isn't in the absence of our suffering. That is actually born in our suffering and through our suffering and alongside our suffering. So we grieve as he grieved. Mm. And we, um, we seek the, the aliveness of community in our suffering as Jesus did and as the apostles did. And, um, and so, you know, again, this is for me thinking about this, both in terms of what works and what doesn't work as a modern, but also um, what for me is a thicker, more robust and nuanced understanding of suffering and how his kingdom comes to bear. Mm. And that my righteousness doesn't come by my religious self-will, Right. By my surrender. And then my spiritual disciplines are abiding in love in the midst of my suffering mm. so that I can be transformed to be more compassionate, more humble uh, because of that compassion, sacrifice more uh, for others. And that is all in this messy space that requires greater trust. Wow. Wow. Me in the messy space that requires greater trust. That is a, an, that's a great statement. Um, Dan, uh, many, if not most pastors also report having no one to talk to. Okay. They're, they're constantly the person that others talk to, but they themselves don't have those relationships necessarily in their own lives. This is for a, a plethora of reasons, but can you talk to us about the importance of cultivating friendship and life-giving relationships? Um, I don't believe that there's anything really more important than that. Um, it is why I think, you know, when we read first John and we're, uh, exhorted to, um, love so much and it's how we love our brother and sister. And if we don't love our brother and sister, we can't say that we love God. It is why Jesus, I think, says the new command that I give you is love as I have loved. And this is how everyone's gonna know that you're mine, that you have love for one another. And love really is activated and blossoms in the places of our vulnerability. Mm. And it's in the places of our suffering. I am most bonded to the people who share their suffering with me and I share my suffering with them. Right. And, uh, and relationships are the place, they're the context in which spiritual growth most takes place. Now, I'm all about solitude, and I believe in the practice of solitude. Right. But I'm also rooting myself here in the fact that as everything was good about creation that God gave for us, uh, and he emphasizes it time after time in Genesis chapter one. And yet before sin enters the world in Genesis chapter two, he says, but it's not good that man should be alone. We need relationships. We need people. It is why I think um, we are wired the way that we are and what it means most profoundly for us to reflect in the image of God. God is Trinity, mm. this profound community of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's the most important thing, and it's hard. Um, as I've already said, it's messy, but I think we have to be intentional about building relationships 
within our faith community, right? So pastors to a certain degree within that church, but also they need people outside of the church yeah. that they can be completely vulnerable to. That's right. Because there are levels of protection there and just right. objective perspective. Right. So that's really important. And then um, I think um, it's really helpful when pastors are willing to do that with other brothers and sisters who are in the ministry. Mm. Um if we can let go of the competitiveness right. and share in the things that are unique to pastoring and shepherding. Um, Cause sometimes it feels like people who aren't in that role or haven't been in that role, they try and understand, but there's this thing like, ah, they just don't get what it's, That's right. what it's like to be here. That's right. Um, and then I think, as I've mentioned before, sometimes uh, depending on the level of our suffering and what issues are present there. It's good for us to seek that from someone who is a professional shepherd, whether that's a counselor or a therapist or a spiritual director, because they've spent their lives studying and developing skills of connecting deeply and efficiently in areas where uh, where there's healing and growth. And if I can say this really quickly, Travis, so much as a, as a psychologist, as a therapist, the counseling work that I do, more than anything else, it's not so much providing answers and skills, although there's some of that. The depth of the work for me, where I see God showing up and doing his greatest healing and transformation, is creating a relational environment in which the healing can happen. Mm. So sometimes that involves information and sometimes that involves some skills and those are great where we can apply them. Yeah. But if I can be frank with you, it's the relationship that yeah. is the means of grace mm. where God shows up. And if you reflect on that, you'll find, oh, that's really biblical. It's why we're encouraged so much to seek unity and to seek love first and foremost throughout the entire New Testament. And again, Jesus saying, if we rightly understand the law and the prophets and the writings, we'll actually see that that's what those are about too. Mm. Wow. Wow. I, I was, uh, first of all, this is incredible, um, Dan. I was reading uh, a study recently that said uh, loneliness is the new cigarettes that, um, uh, loneliness is the equivalent of smoking uh, 15 cigarettes a day. That's an incredible uh, and, and sobering yeah. thought. Um, and when you couple that with the reality that most pastors and ministry leaders don't even have one close friend, it really creates a problem, I think, in, in the body of Christ. Um, I've discovered for myself that if you wait to build a friendship to when you need a friendship, you won't get the benefit of the relationship because you haven't built enough uh, trust to be able to confide in it. Um, it it's sort of like uh, my, my wife and I were having this conversation. She was, she was saying, you know, if you wait till you drink water until you're thirsty, you're already dehydrated. It's sort of that mm -hmm. same concept. If, if you wait to build a relationship till you absolutely need one, um, you're already depleted. And it's, it gets really hard to be vulnerable because I, I don't, I haven't built that credibility with you yet. Um, wow. This is so rich. I have one last question Such for wisdom. you. Uh, Such wisdom there. Thank you. One last question, Dan, uh, for the pastor and the leader listening who can relate, um, they find themselves in this, this dark place right now. They find themselves in a, in a, in a bit of a depressed state, uh, right now. And they suspect that they, they might really be dealing with depression. 
What's their next steps? Um, I think there are a couple of next steps. One is to educate themselves a little bit. Listening to this broadcast, uh, this podcast certainly can be a helpful thing. Um, you mentioned uh, Dr. Gary Lovejoy's book, A Pastor's Guide for the Shadow of Depression. I think that's a great book. It's not long, it's accessible, uh, and it's substantive. Uh, that's a great place to start for understanding that. You know, there are some websites that uh, pastors and people can navigate to um, to find out about depression, um, including like the standards that we go to uh, that we trust, like WebMD or, um, you know, the, the major clinics that, uh, that are most reputable, and they break down what the signs and symptoms of depression are. Yeah. That's a good first step. We need to know what this is and look honestly, hey, what, how does that fit with right. what I'm experiencing and the things that are manifesting in my life? I think secondly, then, uh, there's a process of reaching out to talk to somebody. Um, that may not be a professional at first, but it's always good, as we've been talking about, to not be alone and not be isolated. Then next, I think if there's enough concern, um, really there's no harm. There's nothing to be lost in reaching out to speak with a professional, speak with a psychologist, uh, a mental health counselor. Uh, certainly there are many out there that hold themselves out to be Christian and to be people who will value faith and see faith as an important part of the journey. Uh, in some cases, I will say, when we rightly understand medication and what it can and can't mm -hmm. do, Right. And what it does in the journey, there are times where I think it's very appropriate for us to avail ourselves of that, just like somebody who's a diabetic avails themselves of insulin right. or other things. Not required in, any, in every case, but in some cases, it is a grace to us. So why would we not avail ourselves to that? Um, and so there are a series of things here that someone can do, um, but if somebody's really struggling, if they're it's a very dark place and they feel despair and they have thoughts of suicide or they feel utterly alone and don't know that there's anybody out there to trust a good Christian counselor or therapist um, would be a good place to go mm. um, because at least it's a starting point. And with the confidentiality, they don't have to worry about somebody finding out and what that will mean for their ministry or for their reputation. Yeah. I want to recap today's transformational truth. Wounded healers need a safe place to heal. Uh, Dr. Sarter, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me easily, I guess, on the web at uh, dansarterphd.com. That's, uh, that's my website. Um, there's a way to, to connect to me if they want to. Uh, that's a form there that, that connects to my email. I'm usually pretty good at being back in touch with folks within 24 hours. Um, they can also catch me by phone, and that phone number is 404-919-7891. And once again, I return those calls as quickly as I can. But as I can, but that uh, that website's a good place to reach out, and that can start an email point of connection. Excellent. And Dan, are you taking new clients? As a matter of fact, I am. I'm okay. transitioning a little bit in my work and spending more time uh, actually in this avenue. So, uh, excellent. Well. I'm grateful um, on behalf of the kingdom. I'm grateful that you are. We need your your ministry and your call now more than ever. And for our listeners, if you'd like to connect with Dr. Dan Sarter, please check out the links that we've included for you in the show notes. And if Transformational Truths is helpful to you, please do me a favor. 
take a moment, go to Apple iTunes, rate the show, write us a quick review. I want to help you restore the joy to your life and leadership. Dan, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Travis. This has been my, my pleasure.